spectral news. Today, the 12th of April, 
Um, Eurythagara50.org is, is an organization set up in the UK to, to celebrate this particular night. So we're part of all that. We're, part of, we're on all their websites, and uh, I'm sure that's why some of you are here. Um, well, as of last night, there were 469 events going on in 72 countries on six continents, all six continents, and in, and in space, because the International Space Station is, is manned, and they are celebrating <coughs> as well. Um, today, they say there are 500 events. I think they perhaps rounded that up. Maybe. <laughs> but certainly 469, 70 events going on, and this is one of them. Some of them are really raving parties in big marquees in NASA facilities, and in Russia, you're getting me. <laughs> so it's, it's, it is honoring Yuri Gagarin 50 years ago today. There is one other anniversary today. Anybody know what it is? Go on. It's the uh, 30th anniversary of SDS-1, which was the first launch of the Space Shuttle Columbia. You're listening to The Garbage Pod. I have a whole evening of recordings from the Yuri's Night events, including the missions that led to this historic day, the early life of Yuri and Sergei Korolov, the man who designed Sputnik, Vostok 1, and became Yuri's mentor during his training. Without him, the Russians would have been out of the space race. But I thought it would be best to keep those stories for another time. If you would like to listen to them, that is. Let's go back to Terry Ransom as he tells us the story of Yuri Gagarin's Day of Glory. Was it right that he was only 5'2"? He had a small difference. I think, well, I don't know about 5'2", but yes, short. Yes, he had to be short, yeah. Um... So he was, yeah, he was fitted into his, his space suit. At the last, very last minute, the letters CCCP were painted on his helmet. So you can't see it on that one, but the other picture is CCCP. Because they suddenly realised at the last minute, if he lands in a foreign country, we ought to really say who he is and where he's come from. <laughs> Return to sender sort of thing. <laughs> um, the flight was going to be automatic. Gagarin would have nothing to do. The complete orbit re-entry system was going to, was automatic. But there was a backup mode that if you were to type in a three-digit code, the pilot could take over. So they had another discussion, shall we tell Gagarin what the code is? And they said no. <laughs> we can't trust you know somebody else to, to fiddle. Um, but apparently Korolev told Gagarin anyway. He had a quiet word and he said the code is one, two, three or whatever it is, I don't know. Um, um, so off he went. Um, and Korolev was called Dawn, he was in the bunker, he was the talking to gonna to talk to Gagarin, and Gagarin was called Cedar, that was his code word. Um, so now I want to talk read another little bit about the actual mission. So we've got him in the, in the capsule, basically. Yuri was smiling in spite of the strain of waiting, arguably even greater than it might have been since witnessing a terrible event a few days back when a rocket had exploded on takeoff. 
Yuri appeared calm. He would not allow negative thoughts to encroach. The explosion he had witnessed inadvertently with the other cosmonauts had been that of a combat missile. So it wasn't the same thing. It had been most terrifying. He would rather not have seen so graphically what a launch pad disaster looked like. But he was a cosmonaut. He carried on singing softly. Korolev now confirmed that the hatch was airtight. Gagarin began whistling a Soviet tune called Lilies of the Valley. His pulse rate and blood pressure were normal. Over the radio, they could hear Gagarin had lapsed into singing a frivolous version of the song that he had taught him during training. Everybody could hear him. Today you bought me not a bouquet of red roses, but a bottle of Stolikmaya vodka. We'll hide in the bulrushes and we'll get, out of our, we'll get drunk out of our skulls. So why do we need those goddamn lilies of the valley? <laughs> with a few minutes to launch, Korolev was controlling his voice with effort, forcing it to sound normal. He obviously wasn't feeling very normal. We could tell by the sound of his voice, heavy and broken, that the chief designer was more agitated than anyone else who was there. He hid it all well enough but I was aware of his heavy breath and the beat of the blue vein in his neck. Korolev looked ill. Soon would come the moment of no return. If the takeoff stalled, he was ready with the abort code. He gave the order for the launch. The button was pressed, ignition began, unleashing the sounds of a giant orchestra tuning up. Ignition is being given, Cedar. I am Zaria. I read you, ignition being given. I read you. Complete takeoff. Hoyakali, Gagarin shouted, let's go. Below the rocket was an inferno of white and orange flames sucking in and spitting out. The vibration was so great the bunker seemed to shake, almost a part of the launch. Lying in his citadel with walls of sheet metal perched on top of the R7, now glutted with fuel, Gagarin became aware of the subtle movement. The rocket shivered like an object in the wind as the gantry fell away. The jangled noise of an orchestra out of tune grew and grew. Sounds were difficult to identify. Slowly, power was lifting him. At 0907 precisely, Lieutenant Yuri Gagarin began to make history. And so it goes on. Bye-bye, thank you. See you again, dear friends. See you soon. Two minutes into the flight, the four booster rockets fell away. Gagarin began to feel the G-forces pressing him down. Almost a minute passed, the nose cone fell away. Suddenly he could see the world below him spread out like a map. And there was a lot of talk that he couldn't see out because he didn't have windows, but uh, he did. Um, see that? I can see rivers and the folds of the terrain. I can tell them apart. I can see the earth. Visibility is fine. And so it goes on, and, and about, I don't know, what, 50 minutes into the flight, this was only going to take about 108 minutes, 50 minutes into the flight, everybody was waiting for the for TASS, the Soviet news agency, to broadcast a message. They had three messages in sealed envelopes, two of them were in case of a launch failure, the other one was a launch success. So they instructed them, open the one mark success, please. And it was, attention, attention, all radio stations of the Soviet Union are making an announcement. It will be made in a few minutes. And then it was. The world's first satellite ship, Vostok, with a human on board, was launched into an orbit around the Earth from the Soviet Union. The pilot cosmonaut of the spaceship satellite Vostok is a citizen of the Soviet Union 
of Soviet Socialist Republics, Major of Aviation Yuri Alexeyevich Gagarin. Now, what I just read, he was a lieutenant and now he's a major, so I don't know whether he was suddenly promoted <laughs> because he'd now got up there. Right? I'm not certain in that way. Um, so that, no, there he was on his mission, and even the automatic, um, he, he got a bit in trouble when, when his, his spacecraft separated from the carrier rocket, and it, it didn't separate cleanly. There were still some cables, so he tumbled around a bit until they eventually broke, and then it was a normal, normal landing. It was a bit hairy at that point, apparently. At seven kilometers up, an ejection sheet, uh, ejection seat ejected him, and he then leapt out of that and parachuted down. There was a, an anomaly there, um, in that there was, a, for a long time, the Russians said that he didn't eject from the, from the spacecraft, he landed in it. Whereas every other mission after that of the Vostok series, they clearly said they used ejection seats. Apparently that was because the, the, the world, it's not the Guinness Book of Records, but it's the uh, International Air something, whatever, Federal, well, whatever. Whoever keeps the records for flight, this wouldn't count if the pilot didn't stay with his craft yeah. from takeoff to landing. So they kept saying he was in it. He was in it when it landed. Mm. He wasn't. But it was, of course, such a great achievement that they had to rewrite re re the rules to make it uh, yeah. acceptable. And that's the other one that uh, they wanted. This thing. The Soviets wanted this in the record books, so they said, um, well, where, you know, where did it launch from? They said, they put a pin in the map and said Baikonur. They didn't want to say where it was launched from because they didn't want people to go looking and spying on them. So they said Baikonur, which is a town a bit up 200 kilometers away from where it was actually launched from. But of course, since they kept saying, we launched from Baikonur, we launched from Baikonur, they eventually renamed the, the Cosmodrome Baikonur. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it has a few names like Leninsk and Baikonur and, and other, other variations on Lenin, I think. But um, eventually, it was uh, Boris Yeltsin that said, well, Baikonur is Baikonur, right? So and that was not too long ago. Um, and so, Gagarin was successful. He, um, there we are, a couple of quotes from him. You can see rivers and poles. I can see the Earth's horizon. It's a pretty halo. I can see the stars floating by. Crichton, what are you doing, man? Oh, sir, I'm listening to the Garbage Pod. It's a podcast I found in the podosphere. Terry then went on to describe what happened to Gagarin, Korolev, and the Soviet space program after the launch of Vostok 1. But they didn't stop. They'd, uh, they'd launched Sputniks, now they were in the Vostok series. Um, all these astronauts, including Tereshkova, the first woman astronaut, uh, went up. Then they went on to Voshkod, uh, two and three man missions. Soyuz missions, which were making long duration things, and they were joining up in space. They were developing docking systems. And then we have Salyut, which for space laboratories launched, and this, this Soyuz came up to, to service them and to put crews in them. <coughs> All launched on what we put now call the Soyuz launcher. 
we just develop that common name, Soyuz Launcher. Um, some other things that have happened on Soyuz. The only really true British astronaut, um, Alan Charman, flew on a Soyuz mission from Baikonur in May 1991. And it's still going today. This Soyuz rocket is just absolutely solid, reliable. We've had it very, very early phases, but now 1,768 have been launched. The most recent was one week ago today, carrying crew members to the International Space Station, and they emblazoned that with the words Gagarin on the nose cone. Presumably the rocket's changed in a lot of detail, right? Sorry? Presumably the rocket has actually changed in a lot of detail. Well, it must have done, yes, yes. It's just a concept. I mean, it, yes, uh, you couldn't go, I don't know whether they had an old thermionic valve or two in there before, but transistors were transistors, and now we've got microchips, and I don't know much about the, the electronics, but um, they, they are, it's, it's simply the same concept all along. Um, it is used for, there's the manned mission. And by the way, the American shuttle has two more flights left. Just two, one at the end of April, one in June. And then it is retired. How are Americans going to get to their internet by its international space station? America certainly wants a presence on that. They are flying on Soyuz's. That is our only way now of getting to the space station. Um, and then the progress supply craft. I mean, you see this one, this is the emergency liftoff. If, if something goes wrong, there's a rocket there that will fire and it will pull the manned capsule off to get it away from the blast that is probably going to ensue. But it doesn't, fingers crossed. This is a progress supply craft which just takes baggage up, food supplies, water, new equipment to the space station. And the same thing that we launched Mars Express on, um, a science version of it. It's got an extra stage of, of rocketry on the top, and it will, will give you interplanetary <coughs> as well. And the next step is they're going to start launching these from the European spaceport in Karoo in French Guiana. Possibly August, September, I think. They're, they're preparing a new launch pad there and they will be shipping the components from Russia out there, and we'll now have European Soyuzes. A thought struck me just the other day, why don't they actually start launching them from Cape Canaveral or something? I don't know. Perhaps American pride, but they don't seem to be able to focus on what they want to do next. These have just been doing it since 1950-something. Continuous, continuous, continuous. Obviously, development, new technology, etc. It must be frightfully expensive, isn't it? This is a very cheap one, actually. That's why we went to, to there to launch Mars Express, because it is a cheap version. It's, it's quantity discount, I would imagine. <laughs> and the Russians certainly want uh, foreign currency, so they're happy to do it. Um, so I've got some pictures. That's not my picture, that's from the web, so it's a bit grainy. But they assemble them horizontally. They build it on this great arm that will uh, raise it up, as you'll see shortly. That is one of my pictures, and that was one of the joys of going to this place, where, let alone did I ever think I could go there, but to be given a 
were allowed to take a camera and take pictures of just about everything was, was utterly amazing. And I, I, I like to show that picture first because you've got all those rockets that have to be controlled. There's about well, 24 of them and 12 little ones around the outside. Um, it's quite something. I, I like to take it backwards because it's sometimes difficult to see that it could actually come out of that doorway. <laughs> really big. Um, so there we all are, the, the launching all there. Um, and then they just raise it up, drop it down. The gantry comes up and the gantry goes down again later. Um, so there we are. Um, just a few more minutes now. I'll tell, I'll tell you what's going to happen next. Right? Just, just going to see what, where Gagarin and Korolev, um, well, they both died, um, you might expect. Um, then we're going to have a break. We've got a bit of food and refreshment out there for you. And it's, it's Russian-themed. <laughs> I don't know if you like it. If not, just tea and coffee and no doubt. <laughs> um, if possible, I'd like to just... There's a bit of Russian beer, but it's not alcoholic, so I haven't got a license for it. Um, I'd just like, perhaps, if we could have a bit of a toast to, to you or mm -hmm. so, uh, okay. Um, Korolev is just awfully important as well, isn't he? Absolutely, yes. That's why I've done him as well. I mean, yes, he is he's, he's a hero. A hero. Um, and then uh, I have, I'm one of those 400, 500 people. Um, I've got the rights to show you a, a movie, which is the, for the first time released tonight. It's called First Orbit. It is 108 minutes. And it is a recreation filmed from the International Space Station of Yuri's orbit. So as I said, it's 108 minutes. Um, it includes some footage of Vigari getting into his capsule and the launch at the beginning and some of the commentary, some of the interchange with him and the ground station. And I find it absolutely fascinating. Um, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, perhaps is interesting. The rest of it is going around in orbit. Some of it's in the dark. <laughs> Feel free, I'm going to show the lot, watch it all. But if you do sort of drift off, um, I mean, leave rather than leave. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's all right, right? Um, that was an entrance, there's an exit at the back, and there's one over here. So we'll have a little break now because it's. I need a break. But we'll just, just, we'll just see um, the end, really. Um, I'll have. first. Um, 12th of January 1966, he had a birthday, uh, 59th birthday. Um, and he'd, had, he'd been in hospital because he had a polyp, a bleeding polyp in his bowel. Um, and if you read that, um, Two Sides of the Moon, it's, it's Leonov who recalls that Korolev asked Gagarin and himself to stay behind when others left, and he told Leonov his story, his life story about the gulag and the rest of it. Um, but he went back to hospital on the 14th of January for um, 
for surgery, and they discovered a fist-sized tumour. Um, there was massive bleeding. Sorry about this if you're squeamish. But, um, but basically, Korolev needed a breathing tube after eight hours of general anaesthetic. Um, he couldn't open his jaw wide enough because it had been broken too many times in the gulag. Um, I forgot to say one other thing, actually. When, when Gagarin went to Red Square and he went up on Lenin's tomb and he was welcomed by the people, um, Korolev went by private car. His car broke down. Nobody helped him because he was the anonymous chief designer. So he never saw Gagarin get the acclaim that basically Korolev deserved as well. Um, so basically Korolev died you know, of this, this tragedy in hospital in, uh, on 14th of January 1966. And Gagarin, he was obviously great. He came, he toured the world. He came to London in July of 61. He, um, he was famous. He was a deputy director of Nepi now of the Cosmonaut Training Center. He was a member of the Supreme Soviet. He was a, a, an ambassador for his country and his space program. Um, so he had to be kept safe, basically. But that meant he, he lost his pilot certificate because he couldn't fly enough. So in 68, in March, he took off from that place, air base, uh, with an instructor, uh, and it was a very bad day weather-wise. And there was another jet, new jet, a Sukhoi Su-15 in the same area. This is Leonov telling me this. Okay. The weather was so bad that the new jet came down below the cloud to see where it was because air traffic control had given up. It wasn't working well. So the two planes went so close that they both went into flat spins. And, uh, just a few shreds of Gagarin's jacket were found on a small piece of his body, identified by a mole, known only to his dearest friend and fellow cosmonaut, Leonov. Um, so, there were lots of rumours at the time that Gagarin had taken off drunk, that Gagarin was actually in hospital mad. Um, even this afternoon, there were two ladies in here who came from Czechoslovakia. And they saw about Gagarin, and they said they learned all about him as a hero at school. But he was murdered, wasn't he? <laughs> so that's another rumor. But it, I, I, I think I believe Leonov, you know, that, uh, that the story is that air traffic control wasn't working. They didn't really want to let out that their air traffic control wasn't very good. So. They sort of encouraged these rumours for, for many a year. But um, basically, that is it. Um, Gagarin died in 1968. Um, so basically, there's me on the left, and I'm just sort of so grateful to these two guys who put me into this career, 1957, 61, as a young teenager. 1969 moon landings just as I was finishing a, a degree course, so sort of natural that I should want to go work in space basically. Mm -hmm. Earth based, really. I think I'm glad I stayed down here. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, you know, it's just.
wonderful to, to be in these sort of places. I'm just very grateful. But I, I've been trying, I, I know he said this, I just can't put my hands on it today as to where he said it. But orbiting the Earth and the spaceship, I saw how beautiful our planet is. People, let us preserve it and increase its beauty, not destroy it. Mm -hmm. And for heaven's sake, you said that in, presumably, 1961 or 68. Mm -hmm. We haven't quite learned yet, have we? Mm -hmm. I think. So that, that is the end. Um, but yeah, enjoy some food and refreshment. Not all at once, perhaps. It might be chaotic. Um, I'm sure Anne and Rosemary out there will, will sort of assist. And then we'll see you back in a, not too long. Well, I'm going to judge my future. Nobody else is. Somebody put the on. To say, um, really, that was absolutely wonderful. Yeah. It was. Well, rocket scientist, you don't meet many of them, <laughs> and so he and uh, my Barry and Terry got on quite well together, had lots to talk about, mm -hmm. but really Terry has given us the most fascinating evening, mm -hmm. and I think it's rather special that we should be one of the 500 yes. best, <laughs> probably the best. <laughs> During the evening, every event around the world showed an amazing film directed by Christopher Riley called First Orbit. This film was made up of the original sound recordings of the radio communications between Gagarin and Korolev during the launch, mixed with high-definition footage filmed by the Expedition 26-27 crew of the International Space Station of every step of the flight. This was done so that you could see what Yuri would have seen through his viewport. Along with Philip Shepard's moving score, this really is quite an amazing film. You can see First Orbit for yourself by going to firstorbit.org. If you want to take part in a Yuri's Night event near you, or find out a little bit more about it, visit yurisnight.net. I'll put a link to yurisnight.net, firstorbit.org, on the Garbage Pod website. I'll also put a link to the British Schools Museum, as I promised Terry Ransom, who is now retired, and a curator for the museum in his spare time. The Garbage Pod. Your input is our output. Send an email to the show at garbagepod at virginmedia.com and you can follow us on Twitter at The Garbage Pod. That's capital T H E capital G A R B A G E capital P capital O capital D. Thank you for listening to this special edition of The Garbage Pod and I hope you will join us soon. The Garbage Pod is a Spamhead production.